Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 118 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, occasional filmmaker, frequent podcaster and a big fan of this film. And joining us this evening, he is a writer for Total Film, Radio Times, GQ and more, also the author of the upcoming book, The Book of Horror. Pleasure to be joined by Mr. Matt Glasby. Matt, good evening. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Thank you for doing this. And specifically, Matt, thanks for uh, just going to jump straight into the fact that you have gone for 1992's Split Second, which Andy was delighted about. Me being me, I had no idea what to expect because I almost never do. <laughs> but um, this was also one that listeners have spoken about over and over um, that they've been kind of hoping that someone's going to pick. So um, well done for stepping up. And finally, 118 episodes in. We're doing split second. Yeah, I mean, it should have been your first episode, really, but what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> Why this one specifically? I have a long-standing relationship with the film. I think I saw it on video pretty much straight away when it came out. And it's one of those films that doesn't get a lot of critical love for reasons <laughs> that will become apparent. But it probably gets a lot of fan love because... If you imagine all of the like the straight to DVD genres, you know, like the buddy buddy cop film, the sci fi film, the serial killer film, the horror film, all those, it's all those films in about ninety minutes, all of them. And so, from that basis, it's just it's like a pick and mix of B movies. Fair description, I would say. I was very much thrown for a loop when I realised around the forty five fifty minute mark that this was turning into a buddy cop film. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, I think it gives about equal space to all those five genres that I mentioned. So <laughs> so some of it is a tiny bit awkward. I think the, the horror-y stuff doesn't really come off. But I just think it's one of those things. There's, there's no moment that's boring. It's everyone absolutely goes for it. And I think the result is one of these kind of like like fascinating car crashes which just people really <laughs> really love because the film does not ever let you down yeah i mean we're all about fascinating car crashes here um uh, andy yeah what's your background with split second my background with split seconds kind of similar to matt's i'm assuming from what matt's saying that we are approximately the same age um this was another one like so many that we've done mitch that i saw in the video shop i think i'm trying to think now i'm pretty sure i had seen blind fury before i saw this um, so I was already well on board with. I didn't see Blade Runner till considerably later, but I think I was probably like, "Oh, that's the guy from Blind Fury, which is an amazing film. I have to see this." Rented it, loved it. Rented it again, rented it again, and then it was one of those things that kind of dropped off my radar for a long, long time. And then fairly recently, when One Hundred One Films announced they were putting it out, that's a day one purchase for me. <laughs> so Matt. I don't know if you've heard the show before. This is always a pretty good acid test to see if people have or haven't. We do ask everybody that comes on to the show to do one thing, and it is for the benefit of anyone who is listening to the show that hasn't seen the film. Okay. Andy, do we have 30 seconds on the clock? We do much, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So, Matt, what's going to happen next is I am going to count you in, and we are going to ask you for your best 30-second synopsis 
of Split Second. How do you feel? I feel up to the job, but uh, yeah, as discussed, there's quite a lot to pack into 30 seconds. So, um... If it makes you feel any better, these tend to go hideously. So <laughs> the bar is quite low. So yeah, if that, if that boosts you along, then uh, yeah, bear that in mind. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, three, two, one, go. Okay, so Split Second is a 1992 American-British uh, buddy cop sci-fi action horror thriller. It stars Rutger Hauer as Detective Harley Stone in London of the Future, who's trying to find the serial killer who killed his partner. He's partnered with the uptight uh, Dick Durkin, and <laughs> together they are on the trail of a serial killer who may prove to be more than just a man. Well, okay. I've got to stop okay. that there with with five seconds remaining. That was sensational. Have I got more? Have I got more? You had five seconds. If you can I squeeze mean, anything else out of five <laughs> seconds, you're more than welcome to try. Also stars Kim Cattrall, Ian Dury, Alan Armstrong, and Pete Pottlethwaite. That'll yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the better ones we've had, to be honest. What I liked about that was it set the scene, touched on all the various uh, genres that it, t- that it kind of pulls in, but also just kind of stopped in this very kind of uh, cliffhanger scene-setting <laughs> kind of way. There was no there was no urgency to like race through to that final frame. It was just like leaving a little bit of mystery hanging in the air, you know? Yeah. Sign of a good storyteller. It was that level of control that won me over because quite often people come into this, they don't know what they're saying, they don't know where they're going with it. It becomes a bumbling mess, but no, not for a minute. Matt was perfectly controlled. I had to review the film when it came out on that 101 release. Oh, really? So I've been sort of practicing thinking about how to uh, sum up its merits in a, in a pithy way. <laughs> Has it just been like planted in your subconscious whether you like it or not since then? Well, no, it's just it was one of those things when you have to come to review something, you have to kind of go, do I review this objectively? In which case, it has quite a few flaws. Or do I review it because I love it and think... 13-year-old me thinks it's the greatest film ever. Like, where do you stand on those two things, you know? Yeah, do you feel like um, if, you know, if 13-year-old you was sitting watching this film and then you from the future appeared and was like, I gave this an objective middling (laughs) review in a magazine? (laughs) He'd be disappointed at what I'd become, definitely. But it's the sort of thing that could happen in split second. (laughs) Fair one. As you mentioned in the synopsis there, Matt, we are in the distant future 2008. (laughs) Yes, and, um, and it's the distant future where certainly London has been destroyed by global warming, so it's completely flooded. And they say, there's a yeah. throwaway line early on, they say that the US blocked another res- resolution on global warming. So <laughs> the implication is it's America's fault. <laughs> Do you know, that's, this might be the most prescient film we've ever watched. Yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking when, because obviously you've got this opening crawl here, and I fucking love an opening crawl, mostly because I'm terrible at subtext and need everything explained directly to me. So I eat these things up. But yeah, we did, we do find, as you said, that uh, London has been submerged largely in water after 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Literally biblical stuff. And it is all because of global warming. I was curious to know how the kind of submerging of London was going to figure in the main story, and ultimately does. But for a while, I was just like, is the only difference this is going to make that every time a car arrives anywhere, it drives through a big puddle yeah there's there's a, a lot of the film was obviously shot around the same kind of industrial mm. unit and so yeah like you say they flooded about a foot in the car park and so they've sort of <laughs> jeeps up and then yeah, there's another angle on that and so yeah it's, it's this this particular factory is a foot deep it's car park is a foot deep in water uh, that's it <laughs> it's almost I, think they do, I think they do a good job though i think it's yeah. believably mm. damp yeah <laughs> There's a moistness, oh, yeah, like, there's yeah, an overriding moistness. 
<laughs> so we do pretty much straight away meet uh, Rutger Hauer or hear uh, Harley Stone mm. on his way to an emergency. It's pr- like what I like about this, as he as you kind of see him arriving at his destination, is that it's a proper dystopian future here. Like you know, like loads of near do wells hanging around in the street. Uh, all we needed was a trash can fire for this to be a proper dystopia. There must be yeah, immediately into a bondage club, aren't you? Aren't you? Because that's obviously what what you do in the dystopian future. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite thing about uh, any time he's in this bondage club is that he repeatedly calls a dog a dickhead. <laughs> That, I mean, I was going to get onto that, but yeah, the, the characterization, there's this sort of straight ahead maverick cop characterization, and then there's some real curveballs that I feel like they've been thrown in there for Rutger Hauer because he's such a kind of eccentric guy. Yeah. And yeah, he walks into the place, and uh, the dog barks at him, and he just holds up his badge and goes, Police dickhead. Which is <laughs> just absolutely brilliant. Who, at what? Who thought that that would, like, the script of the guy wrote that and went, yeah, that's good. And then they, they played it and it worked. Like, how did that make the final cut? Twice? Yeah. I like the idea of them sitting back watching that being like, this is somehow a better idea in practice than it was in theory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think also, I do think he pulls it off, though. I think there's lots of, I mean, I don't know, maybe you're coming to this, but I think there's lots of eccentric aspects to the character that um that howard like he's so sort of dead ahead he really goes for things and i think actually it's a really great performance of a really sort of strangely clichedly eccentric character yeah i'd be inclined to agree i think that like i i think that you're right i think that all these kind of like his kind of uh his addictions to things that are kind of like not your stereotypical grizzled anti-hero stuff you know like he doesn't have an alcohol problem things like that i think like all that stuff comes off kind of convincingly because he just plays everything so straight-faced yeah now matt you touched earlier on the fact that ian jury is in this and i think he's doing great work yeah it's it's, it's one of those cameos obviously you don't notice it as a 13 year old um and then yeah getting older you realize that all of the supporting british cast are either like insanely good mm. character actors like people still thought you're alan armstrong or yeah like just strange sort of faces like ian jury um, I don't know what he's doing in the film, but he's quite convincing. Again, it just adds to this overall oddness, this kind of tonal mishmash of the whole thing. Yeah. Classic future aesthetic here where everything is basically wrapped in tinfoil when we get into this club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, th- a few yeah. of those jackets that are just made of like cellophane. Yeah. There's a lot of, if you're watching it, if you've seen it as many times as I have, there's about 10 minutes of him walking down corridors. <laughs> and those corridors are often quite, not tinfoil, but they've obviously they've got a corridor that looks pretty cool and then they've just redressed it and redressed it and redressed it. Yeah. And then, yeah, Rutger just storms down it and that's that's the scene. Also, this this pub uh, or club, whatever, whatever we're in here, JJ's, has no toilet doors. I mean, it's a bondage club. I don't know what, I imagine that's what, it, isn't that what it's like? Oh, well, I don't <laughs> know. Some of, maybe some of our listeners can uh, reach out and confirm or deny that and we can, we can let you no, know. No, it's, it's definitely not. Right, okay, thanks, Rich. <laughs> However, uh, the main brand of popular music in 2008 here uh, is curious to me because what it does sound like is a mashup. Uh, the music is playing in the club sounds like a mashup of Opposites Attract by Paul Abdul and Devil Woman by Cliff Richard. Yeah, and it's a strange one, and it you get the sense that it's different from what's playing on set or nothing's playing on set. Mm. Yeah, that's just been like added. There's quite a lot of things if you when if you watch back at the film, it's quite a lot that's clearly been added in post production. Um, I think mm-hmm. a lot of explaining lines, a lot of things like that. And I know that's a normal process of filmmaking, but it does feel like there's loads in this. So maybe it was sort of, I hesitate to say saved in the edit, but maybe there was a lot of post-production fiddling. Sure. Quick side note, my granny went into the crematory oven to Cliff Richard's Devil Woman. <laughs> so uh, there you go. A little insight. Oh, there you go. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, 
he is on the hunt for someone in particular here, and I think that like this kind of seed setting works quite nicely because obviously he eventually stumbles on a dead woman in the bathroom, and she's not died of natural causes. What makes um, you say that? That's oh, a fairly bloody tableau, Andy. But yeah, I like the fact that it kind of hints that like you're kind of like, how did he know to be here for that? Mm-hmm. And it takes its time answering that question in a way that I think is quite cool. Yeah, I mean he's uh, he's got quite a lot of backstory. He's a hard bitten maverick cop, and he's got. Uh, it turns out this is the serial killer who he thinks killed his partner. So there's something linking them, yeah. uh, which just means actually. When again, if you watch the film back, it means that Rucker Howard doesn't really do any investigating. <laughs> he just turns up at scenes where the killer's been and sort of goes, no, and fires off a few rounds and uh, investigate, you know, t- interrogates dogs and children and uh, slowly comes to find out what's going on. <laughs> In this bathroom that you were talking about, Mitch, the killer has dobbed I'm back on the mirror as well, which, given what we come to learn about the killer, seems really interesting that it would do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I think there is some clear inconsistencies in the killer's MO, and I don't know how much to say or how much to spoiler, but he it doesn't when he appears, it doesn't appear that he would find it very easy to write on a bathroom mirror. Yeah, which we might as well spoil it now, because we, we do head every episode up with a spoiler, um, or a spoiler warning. At what point do we think that the decision was made to add a monster as the chief antagonist into this film? It's almost like they gave, they set up so many possibilities that there's nothing that could tick all the boxes because they're like, well, he's satanic. Well, he's part rat. Well, he takes the <laughs> DNA of all of the people he's killed. Okay. And then you see him in, throughout the film that you see from his point of view in the club. But the, the killer, as revealed, is a sort of nine foot tall satanic alien ripoff. Yes. So if he was just <laughs> if he was just standing in the corner of the club, like it'd be so easy to spot him. Well Matt, when he does break into the <laughs> when they kinda have the, the shootout and the flat later, you do see that he's wearing a leather jacket. So yeah. you could be forgiven for not noticing. Yeah, exactly. I mean so he's again he's a nine foot tall satanic rat DNA oh. serial killer who's gonna what got some clothes from a charity shop or something like why is he disguising himself in like an old flashes Mac? But then, by what you're saying there, you're, you're inferring that this character, this creature, has walked into a charity shop. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where else Satan, a rat Satan DNA serial killer would get that kind of Mac from. It's, well, there needs to be some mad fucking big and tall store. I'll say that, if he's nine foot tall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of those areas, I don't want to detract from the film because I love it, but I wonder how hard they've thought through these, these inconsistencies. <laughs> well, so... In the aftermath of this, um, Harley kind of flees the scene in obvious distress. We do find out fairly quickly um, an explanation, a little bit, of uh, kind of Harley's backstory. Doesn't come across as the nicest guy. Troubled, not the nicest. Uh, couldn't prevent the death of his partner, uh, Foster McLean, is that right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the hands of a serial killer three years earlier. So it's not survivor's guilt that he's uh, bothered with, though. We find out that it's just plain guilt because he then also took off with uh, Foster's wife, whom he then dumped. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a, a, a cracker's old Harley. As well as being sort of cinematically angry, he just does lots of shit little things like he steals cigars from Alan Armstrong and mm. then he ties up his partner's laces and just things like that, just like needlessly spiteful childish things. Yeah, every time he steals a cup of coffee, it's with someone else's pen. Yeah. And sometimes those people are on his side as well. Like it is a bit of a dick move to just vandalise someone's pen that's trying to help you. Like 
you know, choose yeah. battles. I mean, I'm happy for him to yeah. do it to Pete Postlethwaite's character. By the way, Mitch, yeah. I think the second time appearance on the show for Postlethwaite after Aeon Flux. Aeon Flux, I believe, yeah. I think that that's right. I certainly can't think of any others off the top of my head. At this point, enter Dick Durkin, rookie cop and academic. <laughs> Played by uh, Alistair Neil Duncan, who uh, this is one of his bigger film credits. He's done lots of voice stuff since. If Rutger Howe is playing kind of a futuristic Dirty Harry, then um, Alistair Neil Duncan is playing a futuristic Ned Flanders. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, he eats croissant and he does Tai Chi. And it's like, it's like a comedy upper middle class wimp cop. Uh, but actually, he's played so charmingly that you get to like him, I think, quite quickly. Yeah, I think he's brilliant, actually. I think he's a, a great character. I think also, like, a fairly organic arc from, uh, like you say, like, kind of, like, foppish, traditionally nerdy wimp to, like, almost full-blown action hero by the time we get to the end of it. Yeah, that's really fun, isn't it? Like, they, he's, he seems to be just, just following um, the plot and what what you need Harley Stone to do. And then by the end, he does a sort of full comic meltdown. He's like smoking cigars and chucking coffee down and saying, we need guns. We need big fucking guns, big fucking, big fucking guns. guns. <laughs> and so it's a really, it's actually a really great comedy performance. Cause again, he completely commits to being cliched nerdy cop. Yeah. And then by the end, he's completely chewing scenery. That stuff's really fun. I think like that buddy buddy stuff is actually really hard to do. And they're both really charismatic. And you can see in some scenes when they're sort of warming to each other, that the actors do kind of like each other, like there's a kind of chemistry. Well, there's that famous scene where Durkin's kind of taking the piss out of both of their names, and he's like genuinely laughing, and Rutger Hauer's still stony-faced. Apparently that was all real and all natural, which I think's yeah, quite, I think quite you can, lovely. You can see at the end of that bit that, yeah, Durkin's talking about the names, and then Hauer does a sort of, like, Hauer glowers at him, but you can sort of see like he's about to smirk, I think. Like you can tell that like yeah. he's enjoying that too. So I mean, yeah, there is real chemistry between those two. Not the Howard Glower. Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of doing the what what Judge Reinhold does in Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point actually. I was trying to remember he's got a kind of preppy, like nervy energy to him. Yeah. Um just like yeah, just like Judge Reinhold. Quite a lot goes on in this scene at the um, at the police station, including the kind of my favourite first act drinking game, which is drink every time someone says, "I thought you were suspended." <laughs> That's how bad he is. <laughs> they also have a scene which is straight out of McBain in The Simpsons, where Alan Armstrong, the police chief, basically demands that he hands over his gun, and he's like, "What's this cannon? This isn't standard issue." <laughs> I don't want to hear it, McBain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Goodbye, book. So <laughs> I absolutely love that stuff. And again, everyone's just about doing it straight facedly, even though it's just dredged up from like the cop cliche movie. Mm-hmm. A plus plus handling of disciplinary proceedings here as the police chief lifts Stone's uh, suspension, <laughs> then immediately brands him a crazy with a gun. <laughs> Yeah, he actually says, I work alone as well, doesn't he? Class. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> class. I mean, even in 1992, that was that line was old. So fair, yeah. fair play for pulling it off. Yeah, I think it's like it's like the rung below turning your badge, you're off the investigation. <laughs> yeah. But they wouldn't do that with him. They'd, as they say, they'd say, you're a crazy with a gun, you're on the investigation. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, another one of uh, what I would say is one of Harley Stone's more kind of noticeable quirks. When he wants to kind of uh, brainstorm and maybe hypothesize about what's going on here, he goes back to the uh, the scene of the crime, and I mean literally the bathroom where the body was found. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been cleaned up yet. Lies down in a massive puddle of blood and just has a wee think to himself. <laughs> He's rightfully called out for this behavior. Yeah, I mean, 
It's, you're contaminating a crime scene for one thing. Sure, although there doesn't seem to be a lot of people there making sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen. Uh, Mitch, I thought you were going to say the fact that he lights his cigars with a blowtorch. <laughs> I mean, at the next crime scene, he also shoots a rat with a large gun at point-blank range. He does have um, a tendency, now we've mentioned it, it's a little bit of a pattern of erratic behaviour in terms of just uh, using ridiculously large implements to uh, to deal with very everyday tasks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And of spoiling crime scenes. I mean, you don't want extra rat blood all over your scene at which the killer has proved to have rat... Maybe that's why they think the killer's got rat DNA. Because <laughs> <laughs> stone just keeps on blowing away rats. And the... <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I'm starting to see a little bit of a chain of causation that he might be incompetent because, as you say, I mean, like, the fact that he's got what we find out to be a, a psychic connection with a killer means that, yeah, he he never really has to get himself from A to B in any particularly challenging way. Uh, he never he never has to put anything together. He just knows. Sure. Yeah. It's one of those pl- sort of investigations which is just it's just a string of exciting things happening leading you towards the, the climax. And so near the climax, there's still no closer to working out how or why or who the killer is until they find that he's drawn a map on Dick Turkin's stomach and all the killings have been in this big map and you think why did he do that then what was the point in just killing people in the shape of a map to lead them to your lair like again it does it points to like an incredible amount of calculation and showmanship that you wouldn't necessarily on the surface associate with a nine foot grunting satanic alien hell beast true yeah, maybe he wants to be found like maybe he wants help mm. By the way, um, if you haven't seen Split Second before coming into this, don't watch it with your subtitles on because immediately, the first instance of heavy breathing, the subtitles say, monster breathing. (laughs) (laughs) So like, wait a minute, what monster? That's a guy. I can't believe we almost blew past the fact that um, a mystery package arrives at the police station before the scene concludes. Yeah. Yeah, I love that Pete Postlethwaite uh, presumes that Harley's now getting all his booze sent to the police station in frozen <laughs> boxes, like chiller boxes, when in actual fact, it's just a box with a heart in it. Yeah, that's brilliant, isn't it? Harley turns around and goes, who sent this? And the cops, all, it's just all extras, and they go, I don't know, it wasn't me, I didn't see anything. And you're like, <laughs> it's a police station. If somebody delivers like a medical box with a severed, like a, a severed heart, obviously like a, a, a heart in it, just take the name and number of the person that drops sure. it off, you know? And if he's a nine-foot-tall guy in a, in a Mac... That's right. <laughs> also, it's like, did anyone see anybody drop off this three-foot-by-three-foot-by-three-foot <laughs> frozen box? Like, no, not ringing a bell. Also, his fingers are a dead giveaway. How do you mean? They're enormous and long and clotted taloned. Yeah. So it doesn't take that long, and I think, like, a little bit of a leap for uh, Durkin to be um, first to the table with positing theories about psychic connections sure. and things. I, I, I don't think that, I mean, like, obviously, like, it's easy for us to figure that out, but I would say uh, Durkin, it's, uh, like, uh, it's quite a leap, I think, for him to just be like, have you considered the possibility that you're telekinetically connected to this monster? Well, they do, um, he does, there's a whole kind of series of scenes where he just basically follows them, prattling at them from place to place, like from the showers to the toilets and then on into the firing range. And then just everywhere he goes, he's just talking at him about psychic connections with... Because uh, he can hear, the, they can hear the, the heartbeat, right? Yeah. Right, okay, so that's how he knows he's kind of nearby. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's it, it does make sense, I think, in, with, with that in mind, Mitch. It's also a testament to Alistair Neil Duncan that 
he's reeling off this like realms and realms and realms of exposition and actually his character stuff so on so on point that you just think oh this is dick Durkin, i'm getting to know him not mm-hmm. this is the producer like <laughs> desperately trying to explain what's happening to the audience <laughs> yeah which 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 in hindsight of course is definitely what it is yeah. like, but like literally they're obviously just being like right they're going for me to be this would be a good time to just like load in more of this stuff yeah also because rutger Howe is a sort of monosyllabic presence isn't he just you know he just you know police dickhead like he doesn't say or explain <laughs> anything so everyone else needs to do the talking he's so good at it though he's brilliant he's absolutely brilliant there's so much to that character there's so like there's so much business you know they say about lighting the cigar with the big uh, flamethrower and he's chucking out <laughs> coffee he's chucking out chocolate he's barking at people all the time um almost literally barking and i just feel like Howard's got this kind of restless, he's got a slight crazy presence on mm. screen mm-hmm. and they've clearly written lots of stuff for him to do that just makes this character, when you add it all up it makes this character just incredibly compelling even if, you know, sort of strange and cliched at the same time because he's mm. always doing something nuts Fair. <laughs> Yeah At this point, uh, he uh, goes to visit his partner's grave and uh, meets his partner's ex-wife and his ex-partner uh, Michelle, played here by a very breathy Kim Cattrall <laughs> yeah she doesn't get she gets quite short stiff shrift in this film doesn't she um but these two uh meet they muse over their romantic past which feels deeply distasteful given where we are sure yeah and then they like now they head back to his place at this point yeah okay what is going on with his living arrangement here uh, it's disgusting he appears to live in some kind of loft um he lives in a flat where the windows don't open alongside a menagerie of pigeons and i can tell you right now that's incredibly dangerous because there's numerous parasites and diseases that you can pick up from particularly droppings of pigeons mitch not least of all cetacosis (laughs) have you been doing your homework i have yeah you could also get salmonella direct from the feces yes indeed yeah so there's a lot of danger lurking about there and there's a bit where he picks up a mug and it appears to have bird feces on it but he drinks out it anyway, because that's oh. just the kind of guy he is. He doesn't care. Well, he's the kind of guy that drinks from a mug covered in shit in his own flat. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite bad. He does, he's like, just... No wonder he's fucking so grumpy all the time. He's probably swimming with disease. He doesn't seem bothered at all. Like, I, I can't walk... Like, see, if we, we had this discussion on the show before, Mitch, about walking down the street and you get dive-bombed by pigeons. And it's sometimes, you said yourself, Mitch, one scudded you in the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's outside, that's in the street. You don't want that when you come home. <laughs> Certainly the last thing I want at the end of a long day. <laughs> Can I point my the thing that only just struck me this time about his flat, and this is I've probably seen this like five times over the years, is that his flat is full of Harley Davidson yes. uh, <laughs> equipment. So there's a Harley Davidson bike, there's a Harley Davidson poster. Now obviously what's happened is is the production designer's gone, let's just put some Harley stuff in there. It's like manly stuff like he is. But the reality is, he is called Harley Stone. So we are asked to believe that Rutger Hauer, Harley Stone, has, how do I decorate my horrible pigeon shit filled flat? I'll get loads of stuff with my own name on it. He just Mm. doesn't seem like that kind of guy. No, we're also to believe that he carried a motorbike up to that flat. (laughs) (laughs) He he would have drove it up, surely. (laughs) Out of the way, dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) um uh he falls asleep and uh she puts a coat over him so we know that they both have a sensitive side and at this point he has a dream which is literally a sepia tint flashback to the heady days of stoner mclean yeah yeah then wakes up with a pigeon on his head 
<laughs> it's occupational hazard uh, living in Pigeon City as he does. He's like he's like Brenda Fricker in Home Alone too. <laughs> he wakes up to find that she's fallen asleep, and there was a, a second where I really hoped that this sequence would just be them taking turns putting jackets over each other. <laughs> they are very tender in this. He's very gruff and horrible to everyone, and then he's ridiculously nice to mm. Kim Cattrall's character. Like, he's got her photo in his wallet. Oh, and yeah. He strokes her hair, and he puts chocolates on the fridge. And you just think, who is this guy? Like, I just haven't... I haven't. This is not the Harley Stone I know. See, I've got a bit about the chocolates on the fridge, because I, I saw that, and I thought, I must have missed if, it, if you actually see him doing it or not. No. But when you see her going over there, and there's what appears to be Tonic's tea cakes stuck to the fridge, <laughs> they're not in the wrappers. They're just... Presumably, he has licked the bottom of them and stuck them to the door of the fridge in a love heart formation in a house that's covered in pigeon shit. And she thinks that's fine and she just tucks in. She just eats them. I was like, what are you doing? Put that down. Uh, <laughs> I would imagine the fact that uh, Durkin, at this point, casts himself as uh, this absolute monster athlete and also absolute demon shagger. He says he runs five, <laughs> five miles every morning and has sex every night. What a legend. Yeah, he's living the dream. <laughs> he drops that fairly inorganically into conversation a couple of times, so I'm shaky on the veracity, I would say. I think he, I think he's like kind of protesting too much, you know? He does put up with quite a lot from Harley Stone, doesn't he? And he seems to really want Harley to like him. So maybe these are just like big boasts to make the like, make the bully like him. I do Tai Chi. Yeah. I get laid every night. He He's does like do cha- Tai Chi though because you do see him <laughs> doing Tai Chi on top of a police card. <laughs> yeah. I suppose in a flooded London of the future, you'd need to do Tai Chi on a high surface. True. That is quite true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, can't argue with that. <laughs> they head to a bar at this point and was quite surprised that this bar had his tea order. What laps and position? Yeah, and a croissant. I was, I was, I was just like not to make assumptions about the place, not to judge a book by its cover, but I was quite surprised that when he's like, "Can I have those things?" The guy was just like, "Yep, coming right up." It feels like a very hipster order that found its way into a film from 1992. Yeah, absolutely. That's the London, the East London of the future, <laughs> and then the barman. <laughs> It's a barman's way of serving breakfast and tea, and he just hangs around really close in the frame where they're talking. Yeah, it's, it's an awkward. Yeah, it's a bit of an awkward scene. People like, excuse me, we're police officers. This is yeah. sensitive information. Going to back the fuck up, dickhead. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. The, 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 the guy just like looks on the fringes for the entire time, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's implied and... he and Stone are, are old mates, but nothing else in the scene makes that makes sure. that seem like it's true. Yeah. No, I would say that I would say that camaraderie is not one of the things that's riding high in the saddle here. To be fair, if we'd stuck around and eavesdrop, then the stuff that he was hearing would have made no fucking sense out of context, um, <laughs> because it was mostly Durkin saying things about high tides, uh, astrological alignments of the stars, water signs, new moon. Like uh, these were all just things that I wrote down, kind of like Mad Lib style, as he was saying them. Sure. So yeah, like if the guy was eavesdropping, they would just be like, "Fuck's this boy talking about?" He's mm-hmm. had to listen to Harley Stone coming in there every night, ranting and raving <laughs> about this this elusive killer. And remember, Harley Stone used to be alco- an alcoholic. He's he said he doesn't have any hobbies now. He's given up drinking. So maybe he'd go there and bore the shit out of that bartender with um yeah, like you say, with rat <laughs> rat nonsense. So <laughs> that's why he knows his order, that's why the guy's like, Oh god, I've got to keep an eye on this guy. In in fact, actually, like somebody who still frequents a pub who has no hobbies and also doesn't drink is kind of a nightmare customer in some ways. So the guy comes in and he's like, ah, can I just have a water, please, mate? And the guy's like, Yeah, there you go. So what have you been up to? He's like, nothing. <laughs> Just been working, you know. Yeah, but at, uh, least he's get, at least he's getting a food bill out of him. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, he would need to. It's a, it's a, an eclectic offering at that bar, definitely. If you've got croissant, lapsang, two song tea for Durkin, coffee, full English, full Scottish from you guys, um, and presumably sure. a range of booze and stuff as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned that that place is taking on too much. Yeah, you're right. It's a big, <laughs> it's a big menu, and <laughs> Gordon Ramsay, you need to, you need to cut that down. You need to focus. I play your strengths. First thing they could do is redecorate a little bit because it is something of a shadowy shithole. Yeah, maybe if they got some Tunnock's tea cakes and stuck them to the wall, that would be good. By the way, I wouldn't go anywhere. That, well, unless it was covered in pigeon feces, but that had just kind of help yourself Tunnock's tea cakes, preferably in the wrapper. Mm-hmm. While this is going on, though, this is intercut with uh, Michelle, who is making herself very at home in uh, the pigeon shit hovel. Yeah. Going for a shower. Um, but she's supposed to sit in her own filth. No, I suppose not. She should just uh, sit in some pigeon filth, I guess. But um, we get some word on an intruder report at his place or at his building. They head back over there. Um, it's a false alarm. It's not Michelle, at least not the first time. I found this very disorientating to watch and also try and take notes. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit confusing. And then it's another flat downstairs that the, the rat serial killer creature's broken into, hasn't mm. it? Yeah, and this is the first time not... we see his jacket. Yeah, that's it. The, yeah, that's when he's modelling the private detective look. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Um, he, however, we do a big rat thing shoot a gun. It does. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. Yeah, he's wearing a, a coat and he shoots a gun at Harley Stone and, and Dick Durkin. In fact, he shoots Durkin out the window, doesn't he? That's how um, it is. Yes. As we discover later on, this thing has like you know probably like ten inch talons, which would be nine impossible to shoot a regular gun. I would say. Yeah, I mean, like th- this is this is kind of like um this is kind of your uh, your first indicator that maybe it wasn't established the entire time that the killer was going to be a monster. Right. <laughs> because because the, phys- the the physics and the actual biology and the logistics of uh, that thing discharging a firearm are myriad. Sure. Yeah. David yeah, Fincher, absolutely. by the way, has said that this film was a massive inspiration on Seven. And I think in this scene, more than any, you can kind of see it. And there's a scene in Seven where they first go to John Doe's apartment and he, they kind of give chase and chase him around. And there's some stuff in alleyways and the rain and stuff like that. It's kind of this bit to me is the bit that most says, ah, Seven to me. Yeah, I mean, I put that in my notes, but I thought that was just. A, just a bit of a joke really i didn't realize that fincher had actually taken from it because there's a lot of similarities mm. but this is just like the sort of crazy hungover cartoon version of seven <laughs> although it's kind of interesting though because i didn't write anything down about seven i'm not going to claim to be that perceptive but matt when you said earlier on when you spoke about a killer who wants to be found i was like oh like john doe and seven yeah i mean oh. john doe would find it easier to blend in on this the mean streets because he's a small human, <laughs> as opposed to a massive rat lord serial killer. But, you know, I'm picking hairs here when I should sure. pick hairs. Also, heart in a box, head in a box. Yeah, uh, that's true. The, 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 the similar yeah. uh, mismatched police duel. Yeah. Now, um, after all of this, because there's, because uh, like I say, the, the, the fake out of them thinking that the uh, monster has broken into Stone's place and then it not being there, and then I'm coming in anyway, and then there being a shootout is pretty chaotic. But the long and short of it is that um, Kim Cattrall, Michelle, she's been bitten in the melee, mm-hmm. and also Harley's kitchenette slash living area has been shot to shit. Yeah, that's going to get rid of a lot of the, the pigeon shit problem, but it also leaves him without a kitchen. But then he only drinks coffee and eats uh, like chocolate, so big whoop. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, like, yeah, like he's, he's probably not like he's probably not like rustling up a stroganoff every now, like you know, like every other night. So also, fair. do not eat that stroganoff. No, definitely not. <laughs> uh, 
We get a creepy mute child here. Has probably seen something. Doesn't have too much to say for herself though. Yeah, being yeah. as she is a creepy mute child. Yeah, you get the impression that uh, Stone's only minutes away from aggressively interrogating her before he's dragged away to other business. Yeah, that's probably what we suspended for. <laughs> <laughs> beating co- yeah, no more beating confessions out of angelic children. <laughs> <laughs> um, we get uh, some, another flashback slash dream slash nightmare sequence here more clues ref the circumstances surrounding Foster McLean's death this is our first look I think really in any significant way at the clawed hand that we'll come to know and love right sure tensions flaring between Stone and Durkin at this point and at this point I also noticed that like I remember thinking I was like, like this is not the kind of thing just on paper this is not the kind of film that I would seek out for myself right but what I did think it was like I was like God, this is like I was like this is a bit of a wild card selection, but it's going in like a fucking shot. I remember thinking I was like, how are we halfway through this thing? Oh, I... Yeah, it really does rattle along. There's no, there's no fat on it. And like I said earlier, we're moving through all these genres at the same time, so it's actually doing that incredibly uh, speedily, if not subtly. Yeah, I think like like, but I think there's definitely like kind of like a breathlessness to it that works in its favor. Yes, yeah, so you don't stop to think about the fact it doesn't make any sense. Definitely. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> Pete Bosselthwaite. I, I, I think also, like, I just, like, we've, we've spoken about him a little bit, but I don't want to, like, blow past too quickly without saying that Pete Bosselthwaite is great in everything, isn't he? He yeah. really is. Really is. He brings such a, like, it's such a nothing role. He's just an angry cop that's annoyed with Rutger Hauer. And, um, but he just brings, like, a bit of class. He brings some grit as well. His face is not the kind of face you normally see in movies. So, like, he just looks like a guy that's done some living. Yeah. Totally. This is now. This is where the kind of makeup of the killer was starting to lose me. As a first-time observer who was trying to also take notes while they were watching it, right? Uh, this 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 is when I was starting to lose my grip on things a little bit because the fingerprints from the scene had the DNA of Foster McLean. Correct. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, that's a, I was like, that's a curveball. And then it was like, oh, it also has the DNA of all its victims plus rat <laughs> DNA plus Stone's DNA. And I was like, what? I guess that's from the thing, isn't it? Now, now I think about it, but I hadn't thought about it before. It's just it's another great film that the split second has somehow managed to sort of subsume into its plot. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, like again, that's, that's not something that occurred to me while I was watching it, but I suppose you're right enough. And it doesn't make any um, difference anyway. Only all it means is he doesn't have to do any actual detective work to find it in the end. <laughs> Thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not his strong point, is it? Let's be honest. No, I actually think it's funny that Pete Postlethwaite, when he's kind of chastising him in the scene before, he was basically like, you were a shit person in the past, and now you're a shit person and also a shit policeman. (laughs) It's a fair assessment. (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah. Now, there's a chase through a kind of morgue here. Sure. That's good. I think that's one of the things that they do really well, is that there's not necessarily a lot of budget for something like that. It's just five or six actors pretending to be bodies in polythene sheets. But it is creepy, and it does look like a future morgue. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely does. It, it does. Uh, you can even see one of the actors' pulses under the makeup, which always tickles me. He can't. To be fair, you can do. He can hold his breath, but he can't stop his pulse. <laughs> if you could just die for yeah. thirty or forty <laughs> seconds, that, I'd appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, you've never been on my sets, Matt. <laughs> Come on, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> Durkin, during, uh, during all this, gets his kind of first look at the monster, and I would say very rapidly loses his cool slash gear shifts into a much more bloodthirsty and much more merciless character here as he comes out immediately screaming for big fucking guns. That, so that scene is basically... I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that the Wachowski is also 
ripped off split second. But it's like the Matrix scene. They say, don't they? They have like, we need guns, big fucking guns, or something like that in the Matrix, which is pretty much, this is like the bargain basement version of that five years previously. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Every great film of the 90s, it turns out, Seven, The Matrix, whatever you want to know, all leads back to split second. By the way, did you notice there's a moment earlier where uh, Kim Cattrall's like in the ambulance and she's obviously really traumatised by the events that have happened. She knows that this killer's coming to get her now because it's bitten her. She's got a massive weeping sore on her neck and like Stone approaches her for a statement and then while she's just started blotting it out, he takes that opportunity to kiss her. I always think that's really that's a really crass thing to do. Yeah, and also the ambulance are picking up. Cattrall has been attacked the woman that's been killed, and then he has a bit of a panic attack, and they're like, everyone get out of the way. Get this this grown man having a panic attack in the ambulance. And you're like, I think the priority's got to be the actually injured stroke uh, de-heartified casualties. Sure, it? yep. And uh, mm-hmm. the police officer who may very well be dead, because I don't know if we know by this point that Durkin wasn't killed when he was shot out the window, yeah. hilariously. <laughs> I think it's around about here. Now, I think that, see, the one character that I haven't really touched on that I think is really funny is the kind of, like, police chief guy who has just got, like, no time for anybody's shit. There's a hilarious bit with Alan Armstrong here where he just he just has, like, a total meltdown, and it's brilliant. It's an abs- it's absolute genius. That is so um, definitely improvised, that bit, isn't it? Like, he's just walking down the, down the corridor away. It's just, like his last character moment, and he's like, fucking this, fucking that. And someone walks past him, and he's like, and you fucking too. And you can just tell that, like, he's just really into that character right then. Yeah, I was going to say, this is actually potentially my favourite individual moment in the whole film, because, like, you've basically seen him kind of reaching the end of his rope progressively for whatever little screen time he's had. You've just seen him getting progressively more pissed off at everyone and everything. And by the time Durkin is basically like, right... My lead theory at the moment is that the killer is a monster uh, who is eating people's hearts to gain their souls. And my route to this was the Chinese calendar and astrology. And he was like, of course it fucking is, and loses his mind. And it's so funny, I think. Yeah, it's brilliant. Again, he's the angry police chief. It's the role we've seen a million times, but he's such a good actor. And also he's like, he's sort of a believable, like from the bill, like, shit police chief in london and then you throw in like a rutger hauer and it just gives this weird exoticism to these elements you know yeah it's a fundamentally kind of americanized action movie trope i think but in a way it's kind of refreshing to see it played by british and english actors yeah it's sort of a mongrel isn't it not just in terms of its genres but it's got a big international star it's got what looks like american production values and a sort of you know it's a buddy buddy cop movie is an american genre and then yeah there's lots of british aspects too there's like greasy you know greasy breakfasts and ian jury and things like that so it just it's got that thing that no one could have foreseen how this film would have turned out like it, even if it's generic the end result is quite nuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, considering how many tropes and how many genre beats it hits, yeah. it really does feel like a mad combination of elements, doesn't it? Yeah, really, really does. I think that's what's so exhilarating about it, at the same time as what can be quite silly about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. At this point, we find that Michelle has uh, returned to Harley's flat. She's hysterically washing her hands and nursing an enormous bite mark on her neck. Uh, because she's come across the uh, bloody memento that the killer has left in the fridge. We also find out at this point that uh, Foster's mother has killed herself. I still think <laughs> that any time that these two are talking about, at this point, any death in the McLean family, yeah, they like they t- they talk about that because like because this is simultaneously 
obviously dead sad, but also supposed to be kind of a nudge about their amorous past. It feels like there's such a weird sexual chemistry undercurrent to these scenes that it's like it's simultaneously talking about tragic deaths and then an equally tragic suicide but also is underpinned with this really weird horniness <laughs> yeah i mean it's a bad time to be in the mclean family so there's that and i guess calling your son foster giving him two surnames is something that deserves punishment but that's a harsh, harsh punishment <laughs> christ yes i mean yes. a very harsh punishment <laughs> Also, who, who cares about Foster McLean's mother? Like, no, no. There's a rat serial killer on the loose. Like, why am I? Why do I care about the mother of a guy I've never met before in this film? It's an incredibly low stakes <laughs> thing to introduce. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? yeah. Oh, it's Foster's just... mother. No. Fuck. I don't know if I can continue watching. I'm bereft. <laughs> we're kind of like it's kind of mad that we're here already, but we are. I was going to say we're pulling in towards the final standoff. It's kind of like the main road to it. Um, but I do feel like everyone's been carrying guns the size of their torso for the last half hour at this point. Yeah, there's a great moment. Every time that Harley Stone passes a female police officer, that she, they look admiringly at his gun. Like there's mm. definitely a kind of ooh moment that, that someone's put into the script that um, it must be like, yeah, they must gaze admiringly at the size of his cannon. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It must be like, yeah, it's like it's the, it's the same level of ceremony every time you see it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But the guns do get bigger. Yeah, I think it's, it's like tooling up montages go. It's one of the better ones I've seen in a while, I would say. Yeah. It's a tooling up montage, but you don't really need the time lapse required to montage it. That's true. There's no need for it. That's how fast this film is. There's no need for a montage. They can do that in a scene. <laughs> Let's do this real time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess it's just a tool-up scene, really, isn't it? Uh, before we get to any kind of monsterism, though, they do have to uh, rescue Michelle because the Claude Peril has, has been hiding in the sofa cushions. Again, I would like to have seen the moment where the nine-foot alien did that. Yeah, that's a question I have about the mm. nine-foot alien. <laughs> it's really cool when it's sort of it's got like Freddy Krueger kind of talent to come up through the sofa, but... How was that a thing? How was it? That doing must that? have been yeah. an awkward visual. Yeah. Also, if you're a nine foot kill crazy rat DNA serial killer monster, you don't need to hide on the sofa. You can literally just walk up and tear people's hearts out because you're double hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, like realistically, the logistics of him getting in there probably involved him using his giant claws to hollow out the sofa. Yeah. That sofa is ruined. There's one bit when the killer's in Harley's flat, and I don't remember this bit, this bit before, but he turns the motorbike on. That's one of the only things he does, and then he leaves. Like again, how would you do that with talent? And B also, why would you do that? You're satanic, you know what you know what he is. Why would you do that? Like that's not messing with uh, someone. It just seems a particularly unsatanic thing to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like, it's like a low level inconvenience. Yeah. Oh, it's going to run out of petrol now. Oh well, can't go anywhere yeah, anyway. It's fine. It's upstairs. Maybe like maybe like Harley Stone does that when he leaves the house in the same way that some people leave lights on so burglars think there's someone in the house. Oh, I better not break in there. There's clearly there's a motorcycle gang in there. <laughs> there's lots of reasons not to break into this man's house, right? It's full of pigeons and he's, he's got a gun up. in his fridge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, you, you, you either get shot to shit or caught or, or catch all manner of diseases. Yeah, interrogated. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and if you're under the age of ten, you'll definitely get interrogated. Right, Durkin, we inspect Durkin's wounds here, and he has a massive symbol carved into his chest, which everyone deduces very quickly as a map. Yeah. <laughs> He's so nonplussed by the fact that he has this enormous, life-altering scar on his chest. And as we said earlier, it makes no sense. It's a, it's a satanic symbol, apparently, uh, but it's also a map of London mm. linked 
by all the killings to the bit in the middle where the satanic rat monster is, is hiding. Why would you make, there's no need to make that map. And also, how do you really kill people in a manner to make a map? That's quite hard. Yeah. Also, yeah. I mean, like, I, again, like a massive level of uh, a level of calculation. But then again, I mean, like, you know, you've got to do it somehow because I mean, like the guy can't hold a pen. He couldn't have written him a letter. Well, he can hold a shotgun, can't he? Uh, he can hold, <laughs> hold a dirty Mac. I mean... He also has the dexterity <laughs> earlier in the film, by the way, which we never touched on, to not kill Durkin, but to catch him and tie him up in his own car. <laughs> oh, yeah, that does happen. Yeah, unless Durkin did that to himself. Oh. Mm. So the monster <laughs> was innocent know. all along. I don't know why he would do that, but it's just like, it just makes as much sense as the monster doing it. I was genuinely about to let that hang in the air as a proper like, oh, did he though? Thing. And then I was like, hang on a minute. That's why David Fincher got the idea for... <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We now have to kind of try and make our way to uh, the monster's lair. Now, who are these people that they go and see to try and get passage into the underground to uh, to take on the Devil Beast? Well, one so- of them is Michael J. Pollard, who is a weird little guy who was in like Scrooge and House of a Thousand Corpses and stuff like that. And I think he's a rat catcher. Yeah, that's what I got from it too. He's the world's worst rat catcher. And um, it's a strange little cameo because he sort of shows them how to get into the underground system and soon ends up dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's not really any, seeing as they've made so many leaps of, you know, the map and whatever, like they don't really need some little guy with a key to let them into the underground. They could just blow their way in. They have the biggest guns I mean, on Earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose I suppose that's true. One thing that I do think is funny here, because it's been seeded that like um, the entire way through, that Durkin uh, hates rats. And at one point, I think they walk past like I don't know if it's a set of shelves or what it is, but all these rats jump out at him. But the rats jump at him in a way that makes it look like someone is just standing just out of shot, just throwing them at him. That's yeah. probably what's happening. Yeah. It is time to face the beast and get a proper look at it as well, which we haven't yet. And I do think that there's something nice about the fact that it takes until about a quarter of an hour before the end, before we get a look at it. Yeah, definitely. And actually, when we do see it, the beast itself was designed by Stephen Norrington, the future director. And it actually, it looks really cool. I mean, it looks like a lot of other creatures that we've seen. Like mm-hmm. I said, it's Freddy Krueger, Talons. And it looks, it's got like an alien, like from the alien franchise, more. And it's sort of black and shiny and super tall. But it does look really expensive and really nasty, I think. Stephen Norrington, Mitch, uh, the director of Death Machine. Which we've also covered. Which yeah, also kind of yeah. looks like this creature. I have not seen Death Machine, should I? You must see Death Machine. Okay, it's on the list. I'm going to say, yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, a little bit more of a qualified recommendation, but yeah, it's all right. Yeah, I think I, I agree, um, across the board here. I think that um, the creature visual is really pretty solid. Yeah, and apparently because they were rewriting the ending so much, he only had three weeks to make it, so fair play. No way. Yeah. That's pretty good work for three weeks' work, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, they were, they were rewriting the end right up to then. It's like, up until three weeks before, the killer, Pete Postlethwaite. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Pete Postlethwaite in a Mac, and then yeah. now it's a nine... Yeah, that's so true. It's got, it does have the ring of sort of lots of ideas being thrown in at the last minute, you know, say if something else was successful or not successful outside and someone's come in and gone, make it a monster, like you say. It should also be noted that that entire last sequence is directed by Ian Sharp, not by Tony Malam, the main director, yeah. who was off. Really? Yeah, he was, they, there's a lot of euphemism with this. He made, Tony Malam made The Burnings um, oh, back amazing. in the day, which is an awesome slasher. And it's just basically implied that he was stressed by the as we can see, pretty makeshift production and burnt out. So they got some guy in Ian Sharp. 
to do the final sequence, which I think looks really awesome. And also, you can't really tell because the film's such a kind of patchwork anyway. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You can't tell. Oh yeah, you could you could have told me that all of the set pieces in this were directed by different people, and I believe you. <laughs> and and all of the scenes written by different like a different genre writer. Yes. And then it's it's only at the end where they all can see what they've each other's written. It's like a man. It's exactly <laughs> like Mad Libs. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so the rat catchers that we met um, earlier on, it's a good job that we didn't get too attached to them because they're dead. Sure. Gone. Put one out for them. A shootout of sorts ensues here, um, which results in this uh, this final standoff happening in like an abandoned tube train. Yeah, yeah. Now, the film, I, th- I think, has uh, struggled to kind of walk the line of kind of juxtaposing the darker, scarier horror action moments with the comedy side of things and I think that that is at its most egregious here particularly around mm. about the point where Rutger Howell's dangling from the roof and he's barking orders at Kim Cattrall and Durkin and they're not quite here, there's almost a Chinese whispers type thing going on where they're not quite hearing what he says but they almost get it so he's not. they're not quite throwing the switches in time and it's all very silly and it just seems a little bit at odds with the intent as it were of the scene which is to kind of build up this high stakes action moment i sort of disagree and I, all of the things you're saying are true but like i experienced them differently i feel that like I, <laughs> by this point the story's got so silly and the the charm of the characters and the performances is so high actually it's become you know the the harley and and dick and michelle show and that it's more about them sparring and actually all this is just yeah let's have a decent looking monster yeah let's kill it blow the heart off and like actually just want to spend time with them by this point like i think they could do anything by this point and the film would still work just as well <laughs> interesting interesting i don't know like I, like I don't know if i don't know if we've ever had um such a like everything you're saying is correct but my read is the exact opposite like that before. <laughs> i love it this is um uh, again for uh, for a casual observer who's trying to t- to take notes watching this for the first time. It is a wildly disorientating and multi-platform standoff that involves guns, explosives, electricity, and ultimately melee weapons. Yes, I think it does pay off. I think like there's loads and loads of hardware. There's some good lines. Harley Stone takes the creature's heart ultimately, and like it's oozing pus and blows it away. Like it's fair to say there's like a few exclamation marks here. Yeah, he could have just, like, smashed that against the wall, but he actually shoots it out of his own hand, which is yeah. pretty badass. If, especially if you drink as much coffee as that guy. Like, those Fucking hands right. are not going to be steady, are they? I've just been advised <laughs> by my doctor to stop drinking as much caffeine because I was jangling, like, I was jittering and constantly palpitations and stuff. I wouldn't trust myself to shoot anything out of my own hands. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it <laughs> You're right. There would have been a, a yeah a possibility of possibility for injury there, but there's quite a lot of possibility of injury, electrifying the whole flooded compartment, uh, flash grenades, that kind of thing. It's a dangerous job, and someone's got to do it. You know, and do it. They well, do. I mean, this is certainly true. Yes, but ultimately, I, like I say, I mean, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that like the way that this actually pays off is pretty satisfying. You do get this kind of like very kind of cool, very grisly, um, kind of heart ripping out moment where uh, yeah, Harley just reaches right in there and rips the beast's heart out pretty cool visual um i thought that it was going to just let, be left to like collapse and die at that point but no uh Durkin, nice kind of like a full stop on the whole thing by absolutely shooting it to mosh sure yeah and at this point i mean uh we kind of we see them walking away and we kind of like it feels like that's pretty much it or is it mm. it is 
Um, yeah, door left open for a sequel that I'm presuming never arrives. It's a very optimistic moment where the camera pans down to the, the water and we see mm. bubbles coming up, air bubbles, because obviously Satan has been had his heart blown away, could be underwater, still needing to breathe. I mean, I, I'm not going to get into the science of it, but I'm sure it's it's bang on. Um, but yeah, I guess, Sound, yeah. I guess the, uh, leaving it open for a sequel, the film didn't do that great because it was released during the LA riots, so it's sort yeah. of disappointing, but... It's it's it got reasonably well reviewed. There's nothing to say that there couldn't have been like a, another straight to video sequel for that. I don't think. Nah, there was worse yeah, things I mean, got sequelized than than Split Second for sure. Can we before we before we get to the sequel though? We've missed my favourite line in the whole movie. Oh oh. Mm-hmm. So, but back when they're talking about the Satan stuff, Durkin says, "I don't think this thing thinks it's Satan. I think this thing is Satan." Oh, and then amazing. Stone says, "Well, Satan's in deep shit." that is your trailer i mean surely that's just your tagline satan's in deep shit how good satan's in deep shit that is amazing that says a lot about the character harley stone where he fully believes that he's bad enough to defeat the devil (laughs) yeah Yeah, despite not having been able to do so for three years now he's (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's, he's, he's really made that leap in a heartbeat hasn't he yeah Nah, I'd never seen this before, uh, before you'd chosen it. Uh, I had a really good time with this for uh, pretty much all the Yay. foregoing reasons. I Yay. think that this is a total eccentricity and a total curiosity of a film that um, simultaneously feels like it never entirely knows what it wants to do and also feels like it knows exactly what it wants to do. It's really strange. But yeah, really good fun. Yeah, it's that mixture of stuff done really, of bad things done really well. So, you know, like it's really well acted, but the character writing's bad and it's really well shot and put together, but the plotting's bad. So it just gives it this really uh, eccentric viewing experience, which I, yeah, again, I really, really like. Yeah, um, I like that's, yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at, I think, on first watch. And I think that realistically, this will not be my last watch of this either, I wouldn't say. I could see myself going back to it. Andy, yes. your take this time around. My take's never really changed. I think this film's an absolute treat. It's... You've all kind of really said all there is to say. Like it's a mad film that is ev- it's like the best parts of everything that was out at the time. Like the best parts of sci-fi, the best parts of films like Total Recall and stuff that were out roughly around about the same period. It's just an absolute treat. It's a film that I went back to the well on loads and loads of times when I was a young man, and now that I actually own it, I'm going to keep going back to the well on because I've watched it like three or four times since it came out on that one on one films package so it's just a great film and if you haven't seen it i can't recommend it enough so sounds like pretty much unanimous agreement for where here for you matt yes absolutely so before we before before we head out here we i feel should talk a little bit about uh your upcoming book the book of horror now by the time this airs um this is going to be out in just a few days it's september 22nd right absolutely right yeah yeah so do you want to tell us a little bit about that so the book of horror is an illustrated guide to the scariest movies ever made it's got beautiful black and white illustrations by my friend barney Bodoano. and the idea was is to get uh is that most of the time when you talk about books about horror, they're looking at horror of historical importance or sort of big box office successes, you know, uh, things that won Oscars, whatever. Yeah. Whereas actually most fans are only interested, which I'm sure is something your show can get behind in whether mm-hmm. something is scary or not. And so yeah. I decided to write the book collating the films with the only base. They didn't have to be good. They didn't have to be politically correct. They didn't have to be this. They didn't have to be that. They had to be horror films. They had to be available legally and they had to be scary. And that's the book. I mean, like, I, I, I think that's a great idea. And like you say, I think that like it's, it's like um, a very simple criteria, but it's a very effective one for 
so many horror fans out there and one that feels like weirdly feels a little bit untapped yeah i think it is weirdly untapped but i think if you look on all the you know the facebook groups all anyone's saying is what's on shudder that's scary what's on amazon prime that's scary because then they're not saying necessarily I mean, sometimes they are but they're not saying yeah what's good well you know it turns out we know that hereditary is a masterpiece it turns out we know that insert film here is is brilliant but actually what are the ones that just at that you know at that sort of mid table or the the ones at the, the lower reaches of streaming that do what they're meant to and I, yeah i would i would love some if someone else had written this book i would be all over it so yeah i can i think there is a gap in the market there and i hopefully people will see it as a useful resource obviously these things are divisive you know you leave some things sure. out you put some things in it sort of invites debate but um that's okay you know there's no like it, there's 136 films in the book it would be impossible mm-hmm. to get yeah. the 136 scariest films that even you know even any kind of group could agree on but i've put lots of categories and lots of sort of ways of classifying them and so hopefully i've done a you know a reasonable job of covering all the bases this film yeah. absolutely all over the world i'd never heard of before until i started researching it yeah i had a I had a leaf through the book thank you matt I, I thought it was. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Mike. You said there that obviously you said that like you'd been doing a reasonable amount of research on this. Of course, how like how long has this project been gestating for you? I mean, I'd just call it an unreasonable amount of research because <laughs> I'm I'm forty uh, next month. And so am I. Oh my god, oh my god, and we saw a split second at the same time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> dude um i've never seen you guys in the same room either you know uh, i'm gonna have to work on my scottish accent uh, <laughs> so, yeah so unfortunately in uh, next month i've been a horror fan and say let's say since i was 10 so i've been like and i think horror fans by definitions are slightly obsessive about it like you always do want to get to the next thing you know whether that's the goriest thing or the video nasties or whatever i think we're all kind of collectors mm-hmm. a bit so i've been researching that casually for 30 years been a sure. film critic specializing in horror for 20 years get get it getting on for and then this project itself probably took like eight months of solid research but that research was insane like i was watching five films a day Jesus. to try and decide and also these weren't you know this wasn't a variety of films these are the films that i'd been informed or looks like were the scariest films ever made and um i've got to say i do not recommend it from a health point of view like i was gonna <laughs> say what does that do your psyche it all it does is it means that Every time you're in your normal life, you're expecting something to happen that's like a horror film. So like my wife would pop her head around the door and say something, and I'd jump like out of my skin because you're just primed <laughs> to jump. I mean, it's better now, but yeah, it was good. Like, I don't know about what horror films do to you if they promote violence. I don't know the, my answer to that argument, but definitely mm-hmm. watching five horror films a day for eight months is very bad for you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> luckily, um, yeah, I have a loving and happy life, and so I feel I'm okay. But yeah, it was it was a strange, strange time. And um, I guess you get obsessed by it. You know, you've got, you want to see the next thing, the next thing, and you end up, there's so many like weird YouTube videos and obscure this. You know, you get something off eBay and it turns out there's no English subtitles and you're like, well, I don't know. How do I watch this film? Like, And then you're sort of desperate to yeah. So mm-hmm. it was a deep dive, but I have luckily come back to the surface with my sanity intact. Um, ah, well done, well done. I, I must admit, I must admit, you, you sound remarkably thank well. Thank you. Yeah, it's, yeah. no, it's, I've, I've calmed down. It's and I've had a bit of time off from like the full on horror stuff. Um, but also, horror fans are experts. So if someone's going to write this book and say it's called the Book of Horror, it's not obviously it's not definitive. But there's a degree in which you're saying these are the scariest films ever made. I want that person. Mm-hmm 
to watch five scary films a day and and like i want them to do the effort to find that list to narrow that list down so it's as scary as possible mm-hmm. so yeah listeners i have th- i threw myself on that sword can i ask a question just that just purely at a personal oh. interest just as somebody who has watched far more newer horror than old because i'm like i'm saying i, I don't have the same uh background in horror as you and andy do this is something that i kind of didn't start watching horror till my like kind of early 20s and i'm 34 next month i'm next week um what is the newest film that made the list the newest film that made the list is a film called St Maud which is only just mm. about to come out because what happened was I saw it last year way before it was coming out and then uh, lockdown mm-hmm. and covid has meant it was delayed uh, so there's yeah. about a year delay with the book and so what normally happens is the last thing that you've got in the book is 2019 it comes out in 2020 but this the yeah. last thing in the book is going to come out about the same time as the book and that's a really really great film really scary yeah um i actually um i saw it at Freight fest glasgow um, what did you think uh, i thought it was amazing yeah i loved it um uh so yeah i'm, I'm like right there with you on that one because it is also scary as all hell and yeah the, and the other 2020 film that's in there is death of a vlogger yes by your countryman uh graham and good friend yeah yeah he's been on the show twice i've known known graham for a long time as well what are the chances he throw a stone at three film scots dudes and they all know each other (laughs) (laughs) another thing i like about Um, the book as well is you you do these little uh, scale rating graphs across the the runtime of the films and you kind of break them down by event yeah we were trying to make the experience of reading the book like and it's something like the experience of watching the film so barney's illustrations you know put you in the mood of the film and those line graphs yeah like give you a kind of what to expect at what moment which is quite a good way of like mapping a film i think i I, I really loved it yeah i I just uh, yeah i I think on the whole it's a, a really cool it's really well written it's really well researched and put together and i just think little things like that just uh just further add to my enjoyment of it Thank you. Yeah, that's the whole idea is that, you know, you give the, the readers like just lots of stuff to go away with. And also lots of these films you'll have, people would have seen, obviously. What can I tell you that's new about The Exorcist? Well, I can map the experience minute by minute of where it's going to scare you and, you know, delve into how it scares you other than just, you know, on set anecdotes, which I think we all know. So, yeah, yeah. hopefully there's something a bit different in there. So, Matt, that is the Book of Horror, and that is generally available on September 22nd, right? Absolutely right. Matt, this has been great. Uh, this has been yeah, really, really fun, and it's been really nice to get a little bit of an insight uh, into the book and how it's put together as well. Um, where can people keep up with you on social media? You can find me uh, at Matt Glasby on Twitter or at the Book of Horror, which will be specifically stuff related to the book, um, or my website, mattglasby.com. But I suspect at the Book of Horror is where you want to go right now. Um, so, yeah. Uh, hit me up and I would if people do get and read the book and like agree or disagree with choices uh, have suggestions (laughs) honestly get in touch uh, but be nice (laughs) that seems like a reasonable request to me Uh, Matt this has been great thank you so much thank you so much it's been a pleasure Well, we finally did it. Everyone stand down. We've now covered Split Second. Film fan Stevie is going to be absolutely thrilled. I'll say, yeah. And I think a few other people as well. Not least me, by the way. Yeah, you enjoyed that one, did you? I did indeed. And big thank you, of course, to Matt Glasby, author of The Book of Horror, which is out this week, September 22nd. Yeah, I can't recommend that enough. But I guess we're done for another one now. Yeah. Things roll around pretty quickly. We will, of course, be back, though, this coming Monday with Minisode 120, by the way. Jesus Christ. 
Yep, we're racking them up. We will be doing all the usual stuff on there. We will be taking a look at what we've been watching. We will be continuing our stroll through the end times of the 90s side quest and also pondering what you're going to do when we're done. Uh, there's been another couple of suggestions this week, actually. Yeah, people getting creative like that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, to be honest, I'm open to most things. If if there's one thing I know about you, and you know years of friendship, it's that. Um, of course, we'll be taking a look at your feedback and playing Mitch's pictures as well, and keeping you clued in for next Friday's episode. However, in the meantime, if you yeah. want to get in touch with us, there's loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. You can email Strong Language Violent Scenes at gmail.com, and you can, of course, interact with other listeners on our Facebook group, The Chud Locker. And if you didn't already know, and I'm sure you all do, we've got a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash strong language violent scenes. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed our chat about Verotica the other day. Yeah, I hope it was worth it, is what I'm saying. Like, you know, because like, we, we had to suffer to get that one over the line. Yeah, and I hope that listening to that hasn't made you want to do anything stupid like actually watch it. Don't think there would be any call for that. No, 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 please. We're back Monday with another mini so Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye, guys. Love you. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.